You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Which came first, chicken or the egg? Now, of course, in many ways, it is very much just a bit of a jovial um, affront to this talk, I suppose, um, asking the question, which did come first? And maybe when you first heard this question as a child, you might have paused for a moment and thought, oh, that's quite interesting, and then circled back through thousands and thousands of generations of eggs and chickens and eggs and chickens, and then moved on, um, quite possibly, and sitting here today unaffected by that. But the, the reason that question does sort of grab our attention in the first place is because it's actually what's known as a causation paradox where you've got both the egg and the chicken completely dependent on each other. And so which did come first? And you can look at other parts in life and, and arrive at the same conclusion, but the chicken and egg is just a really nice example. Um, and so tonight, the main aim is to be asking that question, which came first? And so the question we're going to be asking again and again and again is, well, what came before that? Well, what came before that? And it's quite a common argument which is used um, sort of in wider Christianity to talk about the idea of God as a creator um, and the evidence of creation as opposed to believing in evolution, chance evolution. So that's the approach that we're going to be taking tonight. Now, in the natural world around us, everything we see is the product of cause and effect. It's a bit like, in some ways, Newton's third law of motion, where every action has a reaction, but it's actually looking at it from the other side. Recognising that every reaction that we see has previously had something happen to it. Everything we witness or experienced has happened for a reason. At the minute that's a bit wordy, so let me try and put that into, in, into something we can all imagine. I want you to imagine that you maybe get home from the talk tonight. Um, and you go into your house and you see on, on the floor loads of water. Now, that water's come from somewhere. That water hasn't just appeared. And it'd be foolish to think that water has just appeared. And we can recognise that and we can see logically in the natural world that we exist in, there must be a cause. So maybe you'd check the radiators aren't leaking or you'd check the ceiling to make sure water hasn't fallen. Or maybe check to see if a glass hasn't been knocked over. But you'd look for the cause to that reaction. And that's a, a logical process to go through in the natural world that we exist in. It'd be wrong to actually just assume that the water just appeared. And that's the same with, with all things in life, with people too. Now in this picture, if we ask the question, if we see these people walking, we can ask the question, why? Why are these people walking? And we might arrive at the idea that maybe they're migrating. And then we can ask the question again, why? What's caused that? Why well, maybe oppression in their country? Or what's caused the oppression? Why well, maybe they're part of a minority? Or where's that come from? Well, you'd follow it back through history and, and time will tell you. But it's, it's logical to try and find and piece together a cause for events. Maybe you've perhaps been on a walk at some point and you've seen a tree in quite a peculiar place. And you think, how, is that, how has that got there? And it'd be wrong to think, oh, that tree's just suddenly appeared. 
because that's not how the world works. Trees don't appear. So maybe a rock climber was climbing one day and had a seed in their, in their shoe and it germinated in the little bit of soil that was there. Or maybe a bird flew over, or a strong wind. But although it's hard to imagine, there would have been a reason, there would have been a cause at some point in the past of that tree. And to think anything otherwise would go against everything we know about nature. Or even something simple as this chair. It's purpose-built. It's been designed. And we can imagine, thinking about this chair, we can imagine the designer thinking, well, what does a chair need? Well, it needs to be ergonomic. It needs to be the right size for a human being. It needs to perhaps look nice so it will sell. It needs to be cost-effective. And we can also imagine it being manufactured too. We can, just, we can picture that. And that's logical. When we walk into a room and all these lovely red chairs that you've got, they've not just appeared one day. And someone purchased them as well. Okay. Um, but that's a process which has gone through. And we can, we can imagine that and we can understand that because that is, that is nature. And occasionally we see something really, really unusual. And we, just, and we find ourselves thinking, how could that have possibly happened? And we don't think well, I can't explain how that's happened, therefore maybe it's just happened out of nowhere. We think, well, there's definitely a reason. I just can't quite, quite comprehend that from the evidence I've got. But it's still definitely happened. And that's what logic demands, that in this world everything functions within the realm of cause and effect, which makes this question, our first question today, such a fantastic question where two interdependent objects, which cannot exist without the other, are both the cause and the effect for one another, and yet they exist in the world we're in today. So how can such a thing be? Now, this is obviously not the first time this question's ever been asked, and it's actually, it's questions over 2,000 years old. So Aristotle concluded that the world simply could not have had an origin because of things like the chicken and the egg. He didn't actually use the example of the chicken and egg, but because of that idea, interdependent things relying on each other to exist around 2000 years ago Plutarch actually asked this question which came first the chicken or the egg to his students as a philosophical question um, he did himself didn't really have an answer he just explained that they're both completely interdependent and the picture on the right is a, is a 600 year old illustration which was painted asking the same question or so I understand so the question which came first the chicken or the egg is one which has been around for years because it's actually a question which is much much deeper than it first seems whether it would be about chicken eggs or fish eggs maybe plant seeds the question is really asking how did life begin so that's the question we're looking at today. And we're going to follow that process of just saying, well, what went before that and what went before that until we arrive at a logical solution. But the bigger question, which is this is much part of, is, well, why did life begin? Because we don't care why chickens begin. Why did life begin? And that's the question we're looking at tonight. So now we understand the breadth of this question, we can begin to try and find some proposed solutions. Um, so I want to spend a few minutes just going through some secular solutions, so some non-religious solutions, and then we'll move on to sort of have a look at what the Bible says. 
and then I'll absolutely allow you to make up your own minds based on what we've talked about. Um, so evolutionary science can be used to present a really simple answer to this question on, on a very basic level. Um, it states that land-dwelling animals were around for millions of years before chickens, so therefore the egg came first. Um, now it's an answer to the question, but it doesn't really answer the main question. Well, I can't skip back. The main question of, of why did, did life begin? Or even how did life begin? So it's not the answer that we're going to settle on tonight. So where did chickens come from? Where did these eggs come from? It doesn't answer the question which we need it to. But evolutionary science does propose an answer, and it proposes that a proto-chicken, a creature which was almost a chicken, mated with another almost chicken, and in turn bearing an egg which had a slight genetic mutation, which harboured the creature we now know today as a chicken. Now, the key thing is that by chance, this chicken turned out to be ever so slightly better at doing chicken-based activities, and its mutated genes were passed on to its offspring until it dominated that part of, of, of the world. So it took over the chicken world, and over thousands of years, the proto-chicken fell extinct to the more prolific animal that we have today. So... An answer using evolutionary-based science would state that the chicken egg came first. Now again, this is an answer, but it doesn't really address the wider paradox that we've been thinking about. So we'd now need to go back, we'd now need to take it another step, and we've got a new question altogether. And that question is, well, which came first then, that proto-chicken or the proto-chicken's egg? If we're saying it came from a proto-chicken, the same question remains, what came first? And in fact, to get to the crux of the cause and dilemma effect, um, the cause and effect dilemma, we'd need to chase this evolutionary journey of mutation and survival back into the Jurassic period and so on until eventually you'd arrive at a single cell organism just floating in the sea. And scientists suggest that this is sort of the evolutionary or process that happened by chance. And then eventually you'd end up with just a single cell organism if you went back far enough before that, before that. And so using our same model of asking the question, what came before that? Well, our question is, well, how did that happen? Where did that come from, this single cell organism? And science would answer, evolutionary science would answer, well, it came from the Big Bang, a huge explosion, a release of immense energy. And it all happened millions and, sorry, billions of, about 15 billion years ago, when all matter and energy in the universe was suddenly released with great temperature and light into the ever-expanding universe that we see today, that we exist in, which slowly cooled down and, and stars were formed and planets were formed. Now, that's fine, but we can ask the same question again. Well, what caused the Big Bang to happen? if we pursue that same concept of cause and effect, this logical concept of the universe that we live in, what was the Big Bang's effect? Sorry, if the Big Bang was the effect, what was its cause? Now, perhaps it was some sort of chemical reaction, you could say. But what caused that? Or we could go back further and, and we could look at the cause behind all the matter of the universe being densely packed and preserved into a single point. Or what put it there? Where did that come from? 
Now, one argument could say, oh, well, it's just always been there. It's always been there. Well, that doesn't quite add up in the natural universe because in nature, you cannot have eternity. Nothing lasts forever in nature. The idea of it always being there is, in fact, contrary to the idea of cause and effect, which the whole universe seems to hang on. In the end, you just arrive at the point where evolutionary scientific theory built on natural progression eventually gives up and says, well, it just happened, and it happened by chance. And it doesn't try to explain why it happened or how it started. Now, we've gone on a bit of a secular journey there, and I've been quite critical, and I suppose there's no one that's able to defend that argument. But logic really, really sort of tears that argument apart. So just to recap, we've started with the chicken and the egg, and the proto-chicken, and using evolutionary logic, we followed that cause of the proto-chicken back to a single-cell organism, and then again back to the Big Bang, but eventually we get to the point where evolutionary logic can no longer provide a cause to the effect. It cannot answer the question, what started chickens in the first place, or more importantly, what started life in the first place? So we've not been able to, following this line of theory, we've not been able to answer the question, why did life begin? Let alone, how did life begin? For this question, scientific theories just have no answer. They say it's just chance and nothing in nature can explain the complexity of the universe. But as we read today, the Bible does have an answer. And so for the rest of this talk, we're going to spend some time looking at what the Bible says and breaking down different interpretations of that and hopefully helping you all come to your own decision about what we can believe about the, the origin of life. So the Bible, an ancient book, but Christians claim that is, is the word of God. Now that book not only records a version of events which detail the beginning of life, but at the same time isn't a recipe for recreating the world. It also explains why life exists and it has a solution to this infinite cause and effect problem. So if you come with me to Genesis 1, which we read together at the start, and the main question we're asking is, how and why did it all begin? And the Bible starts with a really clear answer. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And that's kind of all we need to read right there. So the Christian teaching, Christophian teaching, my belief and the belief of many in this room based solely on the Bible, not something which has been made up, but solely on this book, is that God was the creator and he was there at the beginning. Now, unlike the natural universe around us, God is not a natural being. Let me say that again. Unlike the natural universe around us, God is not a natural being. And I mean that in the sense that he is not bound by the laws of nature as we are. So we are completely bound by time. And there's so many passages which talk about the nature of God in this sense, but this is a lovely one in Psalm 90. And it just says on the topic of creation and God, 
Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, we don't need to be able to answer the question of what caused God, because this psalm tells us that the God of the Bible is from everlasting to everlasting, and that is just incomprehensible to our human minds. It's beyond the natural world that we live in. Because in the natural world, nothing can be eternal. You cannot have particles sitting there forever until one day something happened. But this is not a problem, this argument. It's not a problem for people who see God as a creator because he does not claim to be natural in this sense. This is the picture that humans are left with when it comes to thinking about the God of the Bible, that he is above all nature. So unlike the question, what caused the Big Bang, believers in the Bible have no need to answer the question, what caused God, because he does not claim to be bound by time. So when we read in the beginning, here in our, in our chapter, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, it's not talking about the beginning of God there, because God is described as having no beginning, he's everlasting, eternal. Instead, it's speaking about the beginning of the living world and all the information that human beings need to know. Now it then goes on, just to dwell on the nature of God a little bit more, it then goes on to say that the earth was without form and void. So verse 2, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now, it's, it's a bit of a foul, powerful phrase in the original Hebrew language. I don't know any Hebrew particularly. Um, but the two words which we've got for form without form and void are the words tohu and bohu. Just desolate. And it uses these words to paint a picture of, of this um, immature state of the, of the planet. And it was empty. Those words mean that it was completely chaotic and it was completely void. And from the void, chaotic, lifeless planet, God creates structure. He makes life from nothing. And again, the rules of the natural world that we live in go against this idea completely. Every new invention, every synthetic material that is recreated or created now is actually just a recreation and a remodification of materials which have always been in the earth. Nothing is new on this planet. Nothing can be made from nothing, not by human beings. But here it says, from the void and from the emptiness, God created the living planet. And then we, we read, we would just jump over these quite quickly and we'll come back to a couple of pieces to help with our argument. But we looked and, and what was read for us was the clear six days um, in chapter one. And then there's a third day which is presented, sorry, the seventh day which is presented in chapter 2. And we've got the division of light and dark to start, division of the sea and the sky, dry land brought out of the sea and plant life created. Um, we then move on to a bit of a second section. So to hold the light that was made, you have the sun, the moon and the stars created. To fill the sea which was made and the sky which was made, God created fish and birds. To fill the dry land, God created animals and human beings. And then we didn't read it, but if we carried on reading chapter 2, uh, we would have seen that on the seventh day, God rested from what he'd done. 
Now, as well as being eternal, in the Bible, God, the God of the Bible is presented as being all-powerful. So omnipotent in that sense. Able to make things from nothing. And in like manner, able to make things however he wanted to make things. He chose seven days to establish a pattern for the Hebrew people of old in the Old Testament, resting on the seventh day of the week, which mostly we follow today. Painting a picture of a creator which established a world of structure right from the start, even in creation, structure was there. God is not a God of chaos. Now, he could, of course, have created the whole world in a blink of an eye. He could, of course, have created the world billions of years ago and then slowly, gradually evolved it over time. But the record that is in the Bible and the record which is you can't argue with in the Bible is that it says it was made here in this pattern, in this structure, over seven days. Roughly around 6,000 years ago is what's presented. Now, it's not really our topic for tonight, but it also wouldn't be fair not to mention that there's many, many different theories which try to marry um, evolutionary science and Big Bang theories with what the Bible says. So on the screen I've got up in, in front of you, on the furthest left is the creation of life with the absence of God. So life starting. Now we've already talked about that idea and, and sort of dismissed the idea that for it to start in the first place this doesn't really make sense. It isn't logically not possible. But then on the right hand side, the far right, is the idea that is presented word for word, um, I guess a fundamentalist approach it would be called reading Genesis as fact. So each day was a 24 hour period. Um, so with naturalism being the absence of a supernatural being, everything begins with chance. And the problem with this is we talked about the chicken and egg paradox. If life is the effect, what was the cause? And we've seen that. Logically, it just doesn't quite add up. So just briefly, just working across, um, theistic evolution A, I've called it. I'm sure it's got a much more scientific name. Is the view generally that sees God as a bit of a kickstarter, but then there's no play in evolution. So maybe he started the Big Bang in the first place, but... It's really important that everything's chance and everything's still evolving at chance. That's, that's viewpoint A. And that fixes the problem of the cause and effect issue um, with life starting in the first place or the Big Bang starting in the first place. However, the problem with this theory is that God is presented as being present in life and having a purpose with the world. So it's quite difficult to believe that the God recording the Bible would be comfortable leaving everything up to chance, as we've seen, is presented as a God of structure. I just wanted to notice a couple of things from the Genesis chapter that we read. Um, so just verse uh, 11, Genesis 1, verse 11. And it says, And God said, Let the earth bring forth grass and herb, herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit. And this is the bit I want to focus on. And it says, clearly, after his kind whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. Verse 12 said the same, the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind. So specifically, within the parameters of that 
of that tree, of that plant. And it says the same thing about the animals. Um, verse 21. And God created great whales and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And we see it later on as well, verse 24, talking about the, the living creatures and God's and God said, let the earth bring forth a living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after his kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth after his kind and the cattle after their kind and every creeping, everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. It's just exaggerated again and again and again. And you cannot escape it. This idea that things were made as recorded in the story of, in the account of Genesis, specifically after their kind of specific animals. Again and again it emphasises this idea that chickens were made as chickens. Or crocodiles as crocodiles. And it's almost as though it's deliberately emphasising that the creatures we have today are bound by the parameters of their DNA. Which is true. Even when species crossbreed successfully like a horse and a donkey, that mule is infertile. It doesn't go any further. Because the animals are made after their kind. Because Genesis 1, it says, that's what God wanted and that's what God did. And that presents a real issue then to think that things have just evolved at chance. It really contrasts that idea that we've, that we've looked at in Genesis. Um, moving across one. So theistic evolution B, I've called it. Now, it compromises on chance. So it says, okay, fine, there's no chance. And it claims that God progressed life with purpose. And when humans finally evolved, they were given souls and deeper comprehension than the other animals, which went before. And the problem with this camp is that people who believe in this theory are entirely rejected by naturalism. Entirely rejected by science, because science, evolutionary science, sorry, makes it really clear it has to be chance. That's the only way you can have this evolution of species, through natural selection by chance. And so they're rejected by evolutionary theorists and also massively compromising on what's said in Genesis 1. It matches in no way what we've read in our first chapter of the Bible. And so by trying to keep a foot in both camps, it doesn't really appease evolutionists, nor does it really marry up with what Genesis says. And people who follow this belief will often say that the first few chapters of the Bible, from the creation story to Noah's flood and, and Tower of Babel, etc., are fictional. Completely fictional, they're just symbolic and, and are nice stories to be told at bedtime. Because they say that the world was made billions of years ago. But the main problem with, with that is that so often throughout the Bible, these characters are referred to as facts and not fiction. And if it was really our topic and well, we just haven't got time to go into those verses, but I would happily talk about that with you privately afterwards. And the main problem people have with the Genesis account and why people try to undermine it and say, oh, it can't really be true, is that it deems that the universe is only around 6,000 years old, or at least the Earth and, and the surrounding planets and stars which are talked about. And that proves to be a major stumbling block for people who like to believe in the Bible perhaps, but understand for themselves that the universe is billions of years old. 
And one example, one hurdle they might find to, to sort of develop in their faith would be that earlier this year, in April, the Hubble telescope observed the star Arendelle, which was the furthest star from the universe, from the Earth even, ever observed. And the light from this star is said to have taken nearly 13 billion years to reach Earth. If the stars were created on the fourth day, around 6,000 years ago, the question somebody that wants to believe in creation has to be able to answer is, why has that light already reached Earth? Because surely it shouldn't be here yet and wouldn't be here for another billion years, for a few billion years. So the next two theories going across are, certainly are not ignorant of this question and both offer a response in turn. So the next theory, this idea of ancient Earth creationism, it's quite a, quite a niche theory, but it's not, it is one which is out there. Um, now, it denies the entire concept of evolution. And half accepts, really, on face value, the account of um, seven-day creation presented in Genesis. But really, it sees it more of a recreation. Now, this is the, this is the idea. It's, it's not a particularly common idea, but an idea. Um, that a universe with stars, which we can observe today, um, an Earth, which was existing, that had life, abundant and dinosaurs and all sorts of creatures and ancient creatures which we can find remnants of today existed on earth for millions of years or billions of years until you were appeasing of scientists until one day a cataclysmic event wiped out all life on earth and the account of genesis actually describes the recreation of earth into a hospitable environment is the idea and it's at this time that god creates humans and when it says in the beginning, it means in the beginning of human existence. And this is often referred to as sort of a gap theory, this gap between um, Adam and previous life. And this theory doesn't try to merge biblical teachings and evolutionists. And it also does give an explanation for evidence of life existing for millions of years before creation. And my main problem with this theory, if I can be honest, is that there's just no evidence for it in the Bible. And I wasn't there 6,000 years ago. And I don't know anyone that was. And so I'm cautious to follow any sort of teaching which isn't in the Bible. And the only teaching that we have is really what's recorded for us in Genesis chapter 1. And so I personally don't have a real desire to look past that. Um. And so what I need to be able to do, and perhaps if you follow my line of thinking too, we're just left with this idea, this, this single idea of young earth creationism. That there is a God. That God created life. Life was made mature around 6,000 years ago. And human life began with Adam and Eve. And if you're following that trail of thought, and that's where your mind sits, you've got to be able to answer the question, why is it that we can pop down south to the beaches in Dorset and we can find extinct creatures which are supposedly millions of years old? Maybe answer the question, why are there millions of gallons of fossil fuels in the earth if it is only 6,000 years old when it takes much longer for this fuel to form? Why are there mountains on the earth? Why are there canyons, freshwater lakes from ice ages if the world isn't that old? 
And I think we've got all the information that we need in Genesis. I'll explain why that's up in a second. Um, Genesis chapter 1, verse 20. Verse 20 says, And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life, and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. So we're looking at the fish which were, which were created, and with the, um, we'll have to read on the great whales which were created, and the birds which were created. That's, the day, that's day five. Day six, verse 24, And God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after his kind, and it was so. Now, we've got this picture presented to us that just in one day, well, in two days, across two days, all life, with the exception of, sorry, all life was created. And later in, that, in day six, we have humans created too. This picture that in just two days, all life was created. Now, why do I find that so interesting? Well, if I present to you the idea that these must have been made mature animals. And the reason I say that is because the picture on the screen is an orangutan. And an orangutan, the, the, the interesting fact about orangutans is that it is the animal which is dependent on its mother for the longest period of time outside of human beings. A baby orangutan cannot exist on its own until it is six years old. Now, because we can look around the world and we can see orangutans existing, although there's concern about their species at the minute, isn't there? Um, because they exist today, we can take comfort and we can take confidence in the idea that God made animals mature. And in the same way, Adam is presented as being mature too. Um, if we were to have a look and where are we for Adam? Uh, verse 26, 27. Um, 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Um, and God blessed them and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth, subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Um, I don't know who the youngest person that you have at rugby is, but if you were to say to them that you're going to have dominion over the earth, they're not going to have a clue. And they're not going to be able to exist on their own. So Adam could not have been created as a baby. And so equally, if we just flip, oh, I can't flip back, can I, can I flip back? If we come back, a mountain would have been made mature as a mountain. Although a mountain would take years to develop in a canyon. Um, the Grand Canyon here in America is thought to have taken thousands and thousands of years to, to have eroded until it gets to the base rock down below. But like orangutans, those features would have been made mature. In fact, if the world was made immature, so animals as babies, plants then as saplings, the animals which existed dependently from birth would still not survive as there'd be no mature vegetation for them to eat, as they'd only been planted two days prior. And so surely if we follow this, this idea that what is presented in Genesis is literal, the world has to have been made mature. 
and then Adam and Eve too, I jumped ahead. So I think the picture that we have is that animals would have been thriving in Genesis. Genesis 1, right at day 7, everything complete. Trees would be towering. Fully functioning ecosystems. And therefore, if we take that logic, then we take the logic to wider than just the planet. We can look at the stars and say, well, the stars would have been made as though they'd always been shining. The stars would have been made as though the light had been travelling four millions of years from all that distance away because they would have been made mature. And equally, an earth which appeared old and mature having experienced life already. So mountains, as I mentioned, would have taken, which take millions of years to grow in theory as tectonic plates slowly shift, would have been presented as full-fledged mountains. And likewise with canyons, they would have been cut out in an instant And equally, a world which was created then with fossil fuels, compressed, living, breathing carbon matter into concentrated resources, perhaps just for human use today. And in turn, fossils all over the planet. I once heard someone say, oh, well, fossils are placed there by the devil. Now, obviously, that didn't sit well with Christadelphians at all for a number of reasons. But I don't think we need to think that fossils are, are evil in any sense, but are actually evidence that God created a mature planet with a wealth of history so that there'd be a wealth of minerals in the soil. An earth presenting with millions of years of sustained life and a planet with incredible topography to demonstrate God's power and glory. Because that's what the planet is. It's a demonstration of God's power and his glory. So just some Psalms on the screen. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims its handiwork. That's why it's made so beautiful at night. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. No talk of chance there or anything like that. How many are your works, Lord, in your wisdom? Sorry, in wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures, beyond number, living things, both large and small. All these things created for his glory. Now, another interesting point around fossil fuels, which you can tell me afterwards and maybe going off on a bit of a tangent. But fossil fuels, which are supposedly millions of years old, are... <coughs> Perfectly placed to be drawing the eyes of political leaders to the Middle East. Perfectly placed. Which I think is fascinating, believing that Israel is, is at the centre of, of God's plan for world affairs. Just a, a lovely little idea. So, just to bring us back into the room. We started off a long time ago asking the question, which came first, the chicken or the egg. So my understanding from Genesis is that the world was created mature, not just as grown-up chickens, but as a thriving ecosystem. So at that very instant, on that day, chickens and eggs all over the world would have been created simultaneously, mature. Every ecosystem thriving with life. So I believe, based on Genesis 1 and so understanding 
and the wider picture of the Bible that God made perhaps millions of chickens and chicks, hatchlings and their eggs all at once. He filled the world with life as though it had been there for millions of years to bring him glory. And the broader question which we were trying to look at was why was life created in the first place? And this is to finish. In Numbers 14, God revealed to Moses his purpose with the earth. The whole purpose of creation, it says, was so that God could one day be glorified. Fully. That humankind in its entirety would recognise God as the creator. And they'd come to worship him. And that is completely different to the theory of naturalism. That chance evolution leading to chance existence on an average planet in a small solar system floating aimlessly through an eternal universe is very different to what the Bible teaches. Because it says that actually, it says the earth is special and that it's chosen. And it actually implies that sort of the whole universe and the whole earth was created simply to cater for carefully designed human life that could choose to give God glory. And that then places you and I at the centre of God's universe. And that leads us all with a calling which we all have opportunity to respond to. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.